I want to correct one thing I said in this episode. In it, I mentioned that Chiara Marletto is not a compatibilist when it comes to free will. After recording this, I had the interview with her and got a chance to actually ask her questions and found out that she was in fact a compatibilist, but of a different kind than I am. Welcome to the Theory of Anything podcast. We have a great episode today. We have a uh, guest with us, um, Sadia. Hey, Sadia, how are you doing? Fine, thanks. How are you guys doing? Good. And we've got Cameo and Tracy also. Hi, guys. Um, Sadia is someone I befriended. uh, She's very active in Paparian forums, like on Facebook in particular, but on Twitter. And um, I call her and her husband the first couple and maybe only couple of uh, Paparian uh, philosophy. They're both into it a lot and they're both a lot of fun to talk to. And uh, she is a PhD in physics from the University of Kentucky and very intelligent. And I really enjoyed talking with her. So we wanted to invite her to the show. And uh, just to give a little background on this, um, I was reading uh, Chiara Meleto's book about um, constructor theory, and she mentions in it uh, the problem of time and how it's difficult. You can't be solved in the conventional way of thinking of physics. And I had had several conversations with Saudia about the same subject. So um, her and I talked and we wanted to do an episode together and she chose to do um, kind of her thoughts about physics and how you might go about solving some of the problems that exist, in particular, the problem of time. Although she's also motivated by other thoughts like free will, some of the same things that Kiara mentions in her book. So I thought she'd be an interesting addition to the show to talk with us about this. So Sadia, why don't you uh, give us an introduction to the topic you've chosen here? All right. So um, the topic, uh, we're going to go into a whole lot of things here, but there's going to be a running thread through it. Uh, which has been motivated um, where, where, where I think that the problem of time, for me at least, the problem of time is by far the deepest mystery we have right now. And I think uh, properly addressing that might hold the key uh, to a lot of problems, which I, I think are similar in kind as we, as we go through it. Hopefully I can make a case for it. I've been interested in time for a long time now. Uh, I mean, when I <laughs> yeah. So when I like first, when I took the general relativity course, I was introduced to general relativity. Um, you know, uh, uh, one of the things that uh, Einstein did, um, you know, Einstein uh, talks uh, in general relativity, it's all about events. Um, and then, you know, time sort of becomes relative. But but I, I just felt like I left with a feeling that I still never I, I felt like asking, you know, I kept asking this question, what is time? What is time? And I I don't, you know, it wasn't really uh, fully, I guess I couldn't really get a good grip on it. And I kept thinking about it till one day I actually came across uh, a book called The End of Time by Julian Barber. That was a long time ago. And for the first time, I think somebody articulated that question for me that I recognized that, ah, okay, so this is what's bothering me. Um, And then for the longest time, I thought about, uh, you know, uh, I thought along the lines of Julian Barber, uh, but there are certain things that just didn't add up. Uh, There was still something left uh, out of that theory. So my hope is that in this discussion, I'll show you what are those things that I felt like left out. And only recently, um, 
I've started thinking about it in a different way. And actually, um, my motivation comes from be, having been introduced to Popper's theory, uh, Popperian epistemology. And one day there was this thing that popped up in my mind. And uh, then that also brought me, there are other links here that uh, Lee Smolin's work suddenly uh, um, became kind of more interested. I have followed Lee Smolin, Julian Barber, and David Deutsch. These are three people who are uh, who have influenced me quite a bit in my life. But I think uh, recently I, I started thinking that Lee Smolin was kind of, I hate to put it like losing it with age, but then there are certain things that once I start thinking about those, it, it one day just clicked to me that maybe he might have the key to the problem of time. You, you seem to enjoy him quite a bit. You mentioned him quite a bit and he's definitely a creative, interesting thinker, I, I have to admit, even though I'm not sure what I think of his actual theories, but uh, yeah. It, it's something to be interesting. Like, even if you're wrong on something, if you can be interesting about it, that's something, you know, yes. so. Yes, I, I think that uh, the way he thinks about it and how, and he's also made um, a lot of that work uh, approachable even to non-physicists. I mean, he's yeah. written awesome books. And as a matter of fact, when I started my PhD, I was interested in pursuing string theory because I was interested in something called the background. The, uh, there, there's um, this type of, um, you can say a problem of background independence, don't want to get into that, but it's kind of related to this whole issue of what is time. And I thought at that time that the string theory would be an interesting approach. Uh, roughly halfway through my PhD, um, uh, it was a combination of reading him. And then I also came across Leonard Susskind's uh, book about, um, I forget, Cosmic Landscape or something like that. I forget the name. But, you know, it, I kind of started losing interest and I realized that is not what I wanted to do. Um, and I, I kind of really find it hard to convince myself to stick to something like that. And then I kind of settled for actually nuclear physics uh, at that time. I, I, I just it, it, it's kind of a more complicated thing, but I ended up settling for nuclear physics, which I wasn't really that interested in and finished my Ph.D. in that. And I left academia after that. But but the problem has been with me ever since then. And I've been thinking about it in my own time. So how, how would you describe the problem of time? I, you know, just as someone who's a non-physicist, it never really occurred to me that there was a problem with time. And that's something I only recently came to understand from reading Kiara's book and talking with you about it. it it's not immediately obvious to a layman like myself that, that, that there's a problem there that needs to be solved. Um, and I suspect that a lot of people, you know, if you're not, if you're just a layman, it's probably never even occurred to you that our physics doesn't handle time well. In fact, I, I would have thought the opposite because like, I know that Einstein's general uh, theory of general relativity does encompass time as a fourth dimension. Um, and so it, I would have thought, oh, that means it handles time well. And just that's how I would have saw, seen it. So I was interested in realizing that there actually is a mystery around this that has never been solved. Yes. Yeah. So my hope is, um, I mean, I could try to put it in like few sentences, but I don't think that would do it justice. And hopefully today, uh, I hope to at least by the end of our discussion, convince you that there is at least a problem of time, okay. was, you know, and, and maybe some possible solution to it as well. It, it's Kiara described it as it's it's kind of like it's an atom, right? It's it shows up in our physics, but there's no explanation for it. it we, we rely on it. It represents the different snapshots that take place in order in physics where something moves from here to there, you know, following its trajectory or whatever. 
But, All right, uh, so I'm going to describe to you that is a slightly different problem of time. Okay. I'm going to show you that there are two things here. And I think that's where I want to start actually by talking about something called emergence, which I'm going to say that there is such a thing as emergence and there are phenomena which are novel. So I'm going to make that distinction for that very reason. Even though okay. the world, I do believe, is a, is a unity, but, but I think that there, there is a class of phenomena that can be described by this thing that uh, I'm gonna, the word emergence is going to capture it. And I'm going to uh, first start by uh, saying what I mean by emergence versus novelty. And then I'm going to be using those terms in that sense uh, throughout our discussion. Okay. All right. So shall we get started in um, uh, getting, <laughs> you know, trying to make sense of this problem? Yeah, take it away. All right. So the first thing I want to, um, the first thing um, I want to talk about is emergence versus novelty. What I mean by that and I'm going to use these terms later on in that very sense, because, you know, different people use this term in different ways. So uh, when you're when, when I'm talk about this, you have to go by my, by what I'm saying emergence is right. Yeah. Um, instead of saying, oh, what, 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 you know, because there are different terms. Some people use weak versus strong emergence, but I'm going to stick to what I'm about to exp uh, uh, define it first. OK. So first of all, uh, I want to highlight that reductionism, this view of science, which is called reductionism, and we're kind of we'll understand that as we go along. Uh, I'm pretty much just going to say it outright. It really doesn't stand a chance. It's boring, and I think it's about time we move uh, beyond. You know, we move beyond just discussing whether the world is reductionistic or not, because it really doesn't have much left to offer. There was a time when you know when uh, you know in Newtonian era. Uh, when Newton was doing his physics, electricity and magnetism, yes, you know, um, I could see it, you know, there being a point to it, but really, you know, the, the more you look at the world in general, just reductionism just doesn't do, doesn't really offer much. All right. So having said that, and I'm going to come back to this point as I go through this discussion. So the first thing I'm going to talk about is emergence. Okay. So emergence or what I'm going to call emergences. There are, as there are aspects of the world which can be studied and manipulated by ignoring uh, any type of generative process. Um, uh, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about what I mean a generative process. And I think generative processes play a vital role um, um, in the presence, uh, in emergence. But, but emergence is that aspect of the world which we can pretty much just uh, study without worrying about how they're generated. Um, so pure determinism has been pretty successful in science, right? Pure determinism has made decent progress in working with such features um, where, where we can study the evolution of the subsystems of the universe under uh, immutable laws, which can be captured in the form of differential equations. Um, and by evolution here, I don't mean evolution as in variation and selection. I mean, like when a system evolves with time, um, and I'll talk a little bit more about what what I what we mean by immutable laws in physics. Okay. Okay. So um, just, let me let me just clarify a couple of things. So when you talk about evolution of the system, you're talking about how the how the system unfolds given the unfolds laws. So um, and uh, I mean I can bring up that point now. I was going to later on mention it that you know so uh, under deterministic laws, what we're saying is if you think of the law of physics as some sort of a program. Uh, then you could set up a system uh, and you could talk about the initial conditions of that system, the initial parameters that you set a system to. 
and um, think about it more in kind of like a way of running a computer program. So you input that into a program, the output could be like a prediction you made or something that the world, and then we can check if the system actually uh, does produce that final state that we get out. So, so that's what pure determinism is. And that's what I mean by evolution here right now. But I'm going to later on use the word evolution in a different sense. Um, and I know what the word, I, at least I believe I know what the word determinism is. I don't think I've ever heard the term pure determinism. Would that be as opposed to something that's partially deterministic and partially stochastic? Exactly. That's why I, okay. that's why I put the word pure determinism. I'm glad you asked. <laughs> okay. Stochastic, stochastic meaning random. Yeah. And the reason why I put that word in there is that because I have some, heard some crazy ideas, believe it or not, by uh, recently I came across this thing that John Wheeler, the famous John Wheeler, the physicist, said um, uh, it's called law without the law, um, where he said that the world might at the most fundamental level be lawless. And honestly, sometimes you're like, what, what could that even mean? Like how could something totally lawless? And then David Deutsch actually read a really good article and he changed his mind on that, uh, you know, but, but anyways, yeah. So by pure determinism, like, uh, uh, you know, like I mean that there might be certain things to the world, which are purely stochastic. Yeah. Okay. But determinism plays a vital role too. Okay, so and, and the part that where determinism plays the role is the part that I'm calling emergence. Okay, um, maybe you're going to get to this. So if, if this is a bad question, I, I'm willing to save it for later. But the place that people usually try to insert um, stochasticity into everything in physics is quantum physics. And certainly from the point of view of an observer, there is a purely random element in quantum physics. But mo most Deutschians would point out, they would say, because they believe in many worlds, they would say, well, it's not actually random. It's actually deterministic too. It's just that it's, it's, there's a random element from the observer's viewpoint because it depends on what universe you actually end up in as that observer. Um, is that similar to what you have in mind or different than what you have in mind when you talk about uh, purely random elements? In so as of now, I'm kind of totally open to this, but I will say one thing that if it turns out to be in the Deutschian sense versus a stochastic sense where probabilities are truly an objective feature of the world, I think it's going to have big implications for free will. I can just tell you that much right now. Uh, creativity and free will, which I kind of look at as the same thing. Um, so so we'll, we'll get into that. But, but okay. you know, and it doesn't have to be stochasticity is... Uh, uh, like, uh, for example, um, I don't want to jump too ahead, but Chiara's and Deutsch's constructor theory, right? Uh, there they talk about counterfactuals, right? Uh, yeah. So what I'm saying is, in a way, I'm kind of saying that could it be that there are also certain things called counterpossibles and not just counterfactuals? I feel like that might be necessary for free will. Otherwise, we're just going to have to settle for that, you know, free will as just being an emergent phenomena. Um, yeah. So just just to vocalize my view here, this is one of the things that Sadia and I have argued about quite a bit. I'm a compatibilist, what's known as a compatibilist. So I believe free will is compatible. I, the type of free will I believe in is compatible with determinism. But there's definitely a lot of people who feel uncomfortable with that position. I don't feel uncomfortable with it. But I, I mean, like even Kiara in her book, she she talks about possibly trying to find new laws of physics using constructor theory 
as a way to understand free will better. So clearly she's very bothered by the idea of compatibilism too. And that was one of the reasons why that Sonny and I actually decided to talk about this episode is we'd been arguing back and forth about um, the compatibilist view of free will, which is what I buy into versus the idea that we would need some sort of new laws of physics to develop some new version of free will. Since right now the laws of physics seem to only allow for the compatibilist version of free will. Yes, and, and that's, uh, so what I would say is that emergence captures the aspect, there are certain aspects of um, creativity that can be captured, uh, which, which fall under this category of emergence, uh, where, yeah, you know, determinism is at play, but I don't think, I've actually been a compatibilist for the longest time, till recently, I've really started to become, I mean, my, uh, just to just to make it clear that I'm not trying to it's not that there is a wishful thinking that I wish the free really have uh, the meaning that I'm about to say. Uh, my, um, I guess my intuition and my motivation are coming from a very different place where I would like to solve certain problems in physics, but it seems like it has some interesting implications for free will as well. Yeah, um, no, that makes sense. So you're going to see that there's going to be a running thread, whether we talk about life as I as I'm going to leave emergence behind and talk about novelty. I'm hopefully going to try to make this kind of understand that there is some sort of, you know, first make this differentiation and how uh, and what type of relevance it might have in solving problems. OK, so that that's what I'm going to try to do. OK, OK, so so anyways, uh, there is no, uh, I mean, there's definitely emergence in the world, right? But what I'm saying is that emer emergence is part of the world, but it is an approximate feature of the world where we can, where, whereby we can work with subsystems or if you want to say sub aspects of the world, and they get beautifully captured in what we call emergence where determinism works. And I think uh, because of how successfully it has worked in physics, particularly, um, I think the physicists tend to be reductionist and uh, they tend to lean toward that type of full determinism. Um, and, you know, we even have a fully deterministic, uh, uh, again, the Everett's, uh, the many worlds interpretation of uh, uh, quantum theory uh, takes determinism uh, seriously and, and, and kind yeah. of you know, you see an expression of that in there too. And it's actually, uh, as far as quantum theory right now, stands it's a, it's out of all the different variants it's it's the most successful one i think yeah Still i agree i agree right okay so so the examples that i would give of the what i'm calling emergences are things like when we you know when you study rocks rock formation stars you know how you get geology and how uh, you know you look at how the, the the geology has evolved the evolution in geology the stars how they evolve how um how star systems are formed, galaxy, how the galactic clusters evolve, all this type of phenomena, uh, we've had pretty good success uh, in physics and astrophysics and studying those, okay? So those are all kind of, which I would put in the category of emergent, uh, emergences, okay? So we made tremendous success there. Um, but, the, but when you start going into the question, why are there features? Why are there rocks? Why are there stars? Why are there galaxies and, you know, you know, why is the universe interesting? Why is there life? Why is there consciousness? All these are, uh, you know, all these are interesting features about the universe. It's when you actually ask that, how come all these things can be there in the universe? That's where you start to see uh, that the emergence fails. This, this whole way of looking at uh, badly fails. And I'll show you in a minute uh, how it badly fails. 
So, so anyways, I, I think that studying emergent phenomena has given rise to an incorrect worldview, uh, according to which the world is fully deterministic. And that kind of goes hand in hand with timelessness as well. And I'll see that when you start to become kind of like a reductionist like that, it's easy to buy into uh, the, the, the view that the world is timeless at the most fundamental level. And that the, what we call time, you know, that, that there, are, there is an emergent aspect of time, but it's not fundamental. And I'll, I'll make that clear as well, what I mean by those can, two different Can I actually attempt to explain how I understand that? And you can kind of correct me if I've got something wrong here. Mm-hmm. So what you say rings true to me, right? That as someone who comes from the viewpoint of the universe being fully deterministic, there is a sense in which the, that, would, that implies that the universe or the multiverse is timeless. Um, time would be something from an observer's viewpoint. It's not something fundamental to how the laws of physics work. It's, it's more of a, a perception that we feel. Even like, it's probably easiest to explain this in terms of Einstein's theory. Einstein simply made time another dimension. And then you would imagine um, different slices of time um, as you moved from one uh, point in the dimension to, to the next. And if you're someone who's like dealt with arrays um, in computer programming, imagine a four-dimensional array, you would have multiple slices of 3D worlds. That, that is actually how Einstein laid out his laws of physics in general relativity. And that means that time already exists. There, there's, there's no past and future any different than a present. We may perceive a difference because of our observer's viewpoint, but in some sense, past and future both already exist, period, end of story. Is that what you're getting at when you talk about um, this? Because uh, if that is, then I about definitely- About the emergent aspect of time. Yeah, so there is such an emergent aspect, yes. But, but what I'm saying is that's actually- a very narrow view of what's what's there. And it just does not explain. Uh, I mean, I, I think the reality of time is needed to explain why the world is interesting. As a matter of fact, Einstein, um, I was actually going to mention that later on, but, but I can uh, mention it now. So Einstein, actually, in a letter that he wrote to his uh, friend, um, uh, Bezos, um widowed wife, he, he actually said this, he said that, now he has departed from the strange world a little ahead of me. This means nothing. People like us who believe in physics know that the distinction between past, present, and future is only a stubborn, stubbornly persistent illusion. So even Einstein, you know, at the back of his mind was thinking that, you know, that, that time is not a fundamental feature of reality. Right. Um, That's, that is what I was trying to get at, that yeah. because it already exists and we simply perceive it, then in some sense, there is no time. Uh-huh. And that will take me, actually, I'm going to talk a little bit about what is a clock what, what, or what are clocks and rods, what is space-time as, uh, you know, or how far we've come a little bit in physics and understanding what are space-time, what we make of space-time and physics um, in a little bit as well. All right. So anything else before I go on or? Is a... Nope. No, that's awesome. So, so anyway, so, so, so what I'm, so first of all, I do want to emphasize that one of the things that uh, I would say, which I would describe it as a physicist intuition that I share with other physicists as well, is that we all believe in a fundamental unity and uh, uh, an underlying unity in reality, right? Uh, so, so at some level, unity, th- there is a unity in the world, okay? Uh, 
Um, but but there's also variety in the world, right? So when we talk about emergences, emergences are a real aspect of the world. They are this variety that exists in the world, but the variety, this variety is connected in a unity that which we call the universe. Now, if you're a mathematician, right? If you're a physicist who is really mathematically minded, then you're gonna confuse this unity in the world with a mathematical unity. But I think I, you know, for the longest time, I actually took that seriously, but I kept coming back. There was something about it where my, maybe my physicist intuition just kept kicking in. I feel like there is a big difference between um, the unity in a physical world versus a mathematical world. And even if the world isn't fully deterministic, uh, there is still a unity, but it's, but hopefully I'll make it clear as in what sense there is this unity that exists. Okay. I was actually about to ask that because I'm, I'm not sure I'm clear what you mean by. A yeah, unity. this is right so. now. I'm just throwing it at you. It might sound a little bit like some mystic sage saying something, right. but I'm gonna, I'm, I'm, you can, you know, yeah, I'm going to describe what I mean by that. So, so first of all, there is variety in this world, right? All this emergence that we talk about is a variety. Things are identifiable. Identity is a real aspect of the world. And it is an important aspect of the world that makes it interesting. In other words, you know, you hear some mystic sages saying all is one, this and that, and that's it. Now I'm just going to meditate and become one with everything. You know, I have a big problem with that because what makes the world interesting is its variety. And the variety is uh, there is a certain autonomy that all these different aspects of reality have. Um, and as I go along, I'm going to talk a little bit more about identity, and I'll, I'll, I'll try to explain what, how identity, space, locality, as well as non-locality, they are kind of in, interrelated concepts, all right? And then time is kind of like that glue that brings the unity in the physical universe. Okay. Uh, but I think physicists are missing that part. Physicists, some physicists are starting to confuse the physical unity with mathematical unity, which has given rise to a timeless view of reality. Okay. And interestingly, here's the other thing too. I, mean, I don't, know, don't want to get too sidetracked, but you know you how, how you hear uh, a lot of physicists, mathematicians talk about beauty, like a, mathemat a mathematician yeah. can talk about how beauty serves as a good heuristic when they're trying to come up with things. The physicists describe that too. And, you know, it recently occurred to me that I think somewhere down the line, and there's definitely you know, when, when you're a mathematician, there is an, uh, there is an, uh, uh, an understanding of what beauty means. But I think it's, it, but I, I feel like there is a big difference between what mathematical beauty is and what the beauty from the eye of a physicist is. Um, I, I've heard more and more physicists talk about beauty in a mathematical sense. I think they're confusing uh, the two things. In mathematics, the beauty is more related with symmetries, like a more, you know, the more symmetry there is, the more beautiful it is. And symmetry has been very powerful in modern physics. And I think a lot of physicists for that reason have started looking at, as that as, you know, the beauty of the physical world, but it's actually quite the opposite. I'm gonna show you how the world is anything but symmetric. It's actually, the, it's asymmetry that, that pretty much rules the world. Uh, and I think there is a beauty in that too, uh, in, in, in that, but, but that's where I think the time plays a big part. So sorry if I got a little uh, poetic here, but there is something there, I think, to beauty. Uh, but a physicist notion of beauty has to be differentiated from a mathematician's. And I think we're starting to mix those two up badly. Yeah, let, me, let me clarify. When you say a physicist notion of beauty, I mean, obviously, phys physicists are also, in some sense, mathematicians. 
But what, is what you're talking about physical beauty versus mathematical beauty? Is that what you're really trying to differentiate here with physical beauty being often about asymmetry and mathematical beauty being about symmetry? Yes. And the, and the sad part is I think most physicists are not recognizing that. This is something that I recently kind of recognized that that dif- distinction needs to be made because pretty much any, uh, any physicist that you'll hear talk about beauty will always talk about something which is more to do with math mathematics, symmetry, because symmetry has been such a powerful thing in um, uh, particle physics, in, uh, you know, in our theories, it has been, been a very powerful uh, thing. Uh, I'll, I'll talk about this in a little bit, but, but, but I think we've kind of confused because the world isn't really about, like, our world is actually far from uh, symmetric. Yes, there are underlying deterministic laws, and when you study emergence, there, there is an aspect of reality, uh, under that, you know, what I'm calling emergence, that you're going to find um, symmetry. But I think it's because mathematics has been such a useful, uh, you know, thing to approximate those features. And I think somewhere down the line, we've totally confused physical beauty with mathematical beauty. And we need to start looking into this a little bit more carefully. By the way, are you familiar with John Polkinghorne? Mm, it sounds familiar, but no, maybe if you mention it, I'll, I'll remember. But He's a physicist slash theologian uh-huh. who has written quite a bit about, so obviously he's looking at this from a largely theologian's viewpoint, but he's written quite a bit about how um, scientists, physicists in particular, um, try to determine if things are true or not based on uh, the beauty that they see, they see there. Um, and then of course, um, there's a lady, I suddenly can't remember her name, uh, who wrote a book about how she feels that that's the search for beauty in equations has um, misled physicists, in her opinion. So t- two interesting viewpoints there that seem relevant to what you're talking about. Yeah, I, I feel like the whole thing about beauty is something that we're also uncovering as we uncover the universe. It's not like there is some sort of a transcendent thing where we're, we have some sort of a like some innate knowledge, uh, like, you know, uh, that we could somehow use as a heuristic. I guess what I, what I, the, the way I see beauty is that, you know, what we find beautiful, that's, that's, that is also something that we can be wrong about. So, um, but there is something there, there, there's definitely something there that why we find certain things more beautiful than others, but we can be wrong about that too. Uh, we, we, we need to be open to that. There, we aren't looking at something trans, you know, uh, transcend, transcendent, right? Uh, that that we could use, um, which infallibly would lead us to something. I'm not suggesting anything of that sort. Okay, fair enough. I'll buy that. So, so anyways, going to that, and actually, uh, the whole idea that I was talking about the unity and plurality. I think um, I, I would. I just somehow do want to just badly put Bono's lyrics in there. Uh, one of my favorite U2 song, One where he actually says, we are one, but we are not the same. I often tell this to my husband. I'm like, you know what? You might think that I, you know, here and there, I do talk about this underlying beauty in the world, but we're not the same. Like the, the beauty of the world is actually in its diversity, but there is a unity in there as well. And the, the two aspects together is what makes it really beautiful. But, but anyways, I, I think maybe as I go along, that is a little bit more of a skeptical thing that I'm talking about here. Um, but, but let's get to a little bit more specific stuff, I guess. So, um, so now I'm going to talk about novelty. So now I've given you an idea of emergence. Emergence is something that is cap- captured by pure determinism. Novelty, on the other hand, has a generative element to it. 
And I think evolutionary processes are a big part uh, of that. So when you look at evolution of life, it involves steps. The history is important. As a matter of fact, some of the things that I've recently come to realize has a lot to do with me having dived down a little bit into theoretical biology. And at first, it's kind of weird when you start as being a physicist, when you actually study theoretical biology, it seems to talk in a weird type of a language, you know, like, you know, like we're all familiar with high school, you know, most of us have taken high school biology, biology about adaptations and stuff, but you start, start to speak in a language or when, when you say certain things are adapted towards certain things, it seems like a lot of things tend to become more state dependent, um, like, um, I don't know how to capture it. I, I kind of wanted to get into this topic in more detail about what is life later on. Uh, but but it seems like the process of evolution, uh, when I'm talking about novelty, I I'm, I've just want to clarify here that I do mean that there is a process of variation and selection involved. And in that process, history matters a lot. Like history is really important. Um, any questions on that? I, I don't know if I've clarified what well, I mean. Oh, that makes sense. And, and you you wouldn't know this, but our last, you know, I, we, we, to a couple of our latest episodes, we actually talked about this from the standpoint of machine learning, which is my area of interest, um, that a great number of the machine learning algorithms, but not all of them, but, but most of them have an evolutionary process of variation and selection that powers them. And so that's how they come up with you know novel results is by doing that so that it's interesting that you bring that up and it's also interesting that i can show you what seem to be exception cases so it's not clear yet if that's the only way to generate novelty um, that's one of the things i would consider an open epistemological question based on uh, machine learning at this point hmm, interesting all right so but but anyways for now at least i do recognize i, I feel like the evolution is a big uh, aspect of this, the, 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 what I'm, what I'm calling novelty or generative is pretty much like the process matters. Okay, well, which yeah. obviously means if I if I'm saying process matters, and if I'm saying um, may, maybe we'll go a little bit further to uh, to see what I'm trying to say here, um, because I feel like we've already discussed this that there are aspects of the world that cannot be captured. I feel by strict determinism. Um, I haven't really fully explained that yet. Uh, and I also think that the universe, so, so first of all, this is a little bit more of a thesis. I, I think that the universe is generative, which means it is becoming, okay? Uh, it isn't just something that we're just uncovering as if there was some timeless realm in which everything that could possibly happen is already there and we're uncovering it. But it's actually, there is a genuine becoming. It could have been one way, but it isn't. It is some other way. So, so see, that's where I'm kind of trying to make the distinction between counter- factuals versus counter possibles. Uh, the, the future is all about possibilities. The past no, is no longer real. All that's real is uh, the, the present because we can affect present. We can affect our past. We, we don't know anything about the future. So the future is open, uh, which means that there are possibilities that are open. Um, and I think that uh, emergence lacks uh, emergence simply just cannot explain the way the world is, as I'll go into my next little bit of segment. I'll, I'll try to explain to you why, why I think what deficiencies emergence has. But it's, it's pretty, it's been really successful. And it is, uh, there, there's much in the world that you can understand totally using emergence. Okay, so 
So um, one of the aspects, I'm going to give you an example, which, which I think is novel. Okay. So now let's talk about examples of novelty. I gave you the examples of emergence. I think life is novel. Now, when I say life, I'm not talking about any particular organism that you pick it up and you're like that, you know, if I just want to study an organism, I can totally do, do that as some emergent feature of this world. I can use, uh, you know, like I, I can pretty much study many things, even using chemistry, you know, and uh, understanding of the biology. That's all fine. But when I say life, I mean life as a phenomena, the whole thing where the, the, the unfolding this this whole thing of the evolution of life as a phenomena you could even think of that as the whole biosphere or whatever as life is evolved i think that whole phenomena is novel and uh it just cannot be captured by emergence um so i i think that neo-darwinian theory of evolution doesn't fully capture the phenomena of life now when i say neo-darwinian what, what we're specifically saying is that evolution happening at the gene replication level right yeah but I'm also saying the novelty is evolution. I'm just saying that it's not restricted to just gene evolution. Uh, yeah. I'm saying that there is something else going on. In other words, I think life has been learning in other places too, other than just genes. So Cameo and I did an episode about this. I don't know if you had a chance. Yes, to yes, listen. I know. And that has been really interesting, you know, of a lot of interest to me as well. That worm that we're right. Yes. That. Yes. Uh, yeah. So, so anyways, the, the aspect that I'm saying is not captured uh, by just studying, say, organisms or emergence, right, um, is, I think, what is captured by something called the hard problem of life. I don't know who originally came up with the idea, but Paul Davis and Sarah Walker has written an excellent, uh, uh, there is an article that I can, I don't know if you have someplace on your podcast, maybe I could share the link to that where he sure. explains what's the hard problem of life. And he's not the only one who's highlighted that there are aspects of, uh, which are related to abiogenesis. Uh, in, in other words, when life originated from basic, from, in jumping from organic chemistry to replicators, and he, overall in evolution of life, there are certain aspects that become very improbable uh, within the current theory of evolution that we have in New Germanian theory. Or, Could or I take a second to explain that maybe? So to... Because I actually think that's an important point. Oh, yeah, I would love for you to yeah, go ahead. We were yeah. So once you have replicators, once you have life, the theory of evolution does a good job of explaining how it is that life can um, continue to maintain itself against what seems like a contradiction. It's not a contradiction, but might seem like a contradiction to the second law of thermodynamics. So how is it that life can you know, some species get more complicated over time. How is it they can hold themselves in low entropy states when it should be that entropy is growing on a regular basis? So evolution does a good job of explaining that. It's, it's a good theory that because the, the not as good models die out, you end up with the ones that are able to do that. And so you end up with this kind of counter trend um, of low entropy. But how do you actually get to the point where that jump to having replicators takes place in the first place. The second law of thermodynamics seems to make that not possible. And there is, there's this question of how did you know, non-living matter become replicators and then become what we would call living matter today in the first place, given that there, they didn't, you know, there wasn't life there to turn it into something that would be a, an infinite regress to try to explain it that way. So how is it that it came about in the first place? 
that's my understanding of what the hard problem exactly because you know if you don't have replicators then you can't have like what is the theory of evolution about right uh, you know what without a replicator uh and that jump would have would seem really improbable uh unless if there was some other way uh that evolution at my guess is that the evolution is working see i, I i'm going to make the case that the theory of time is actually a theory of evolution um as you'll see i'm i'm kind of now jumping ahead a little bit but i think but but so so it's basically taking the theory of evolution and saying that 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 goes deeper than just life um or knowledge uh and and actually that the theory of evolution gives us might be our only hope to explain why the world is interesting in general and there are some other problems deep problems in physics that may only be solved by taking a theory some sort of a theory of evolution um and i'm not talking about evolution of life i'm i'm i'll try to make that clear what i mean uh yeah so no i but i get what you're saying here so to reference the machine learning episodes that we did i'm making the case that evolutionary theory applies all over the place that it has is not limited to life at all and that's what we call universal darwinism it's the idea that um there are knowledge creating creating processes that exist all throughout nature and i think where you're going with this i don't quite understand where you're going with this but i think where you're going with this is that maybe the existence of replicators doesn't need a, you know it, it needs an explanation how did the replicators come to be but that explanation might be that there were evolutionary processes that existed in physics to begin with ones that we don't really understand yet and if that's the case maybe that's where the replicators came from is that kind of what you're getting at yes yes that there are other selection variation selection criteria in the uh, in nature other than just the the rep, rep, the the replicators the organic replicators i mean so yeah so it, it goes deeper i think okay all right so um and and i'm going to come to that like i i'm going to make a case for why i think we should take something like this seriously at least as a you know as one of the ways to explain things um so another thing that i think is novel is creativity i think creativity is also novel in the sense that it is an evolutionary process um and it is capable of creating novelty i don't think there has to be any type of quantum mechanics involved in understanding understanding novelty i think as long as and you and i kind of had a little bit of a back and forth on facebook about this too and i i'm totally actually with you on that as long as even if you have some pseudo random generation you know okay. or um yeah yeah i mean it doesn't have to have the probability doesn't have to be um the probably doesn't have to be something fundamental to physics uh for uh, for us to be able to uh, okay. uh have agi but at the that same time that would be one of my I main was... questions too so i'm glad you clarified that i I've, i've been having this discussion with several deutschians and popperians about pseudo random numbers versus random numbers to the best of our knowledge the two can be used more or less uh interchangeably you, you sometimes get some advantages with true randomness um over pseudo randomness because like in machine learning it creates a little bit of a bias but there's no algorithm that we know of that requires true randomness over pseudo randomness and i totally those- agree and even in quantum physics you know when we're saying i mean yeah there are processes like if you see uh, quantum processes uh, happening you know you take into account all sorts of possibilities but they're not equally contributing um I mean I guess what I'm trying to say is there are constraints on on what sort of things the, you know a quantum system might possibly become 
I mean, they're not like strict constraints, but approximate constraints, but still, you know, it's not uh, at any time, any type of a process is always working with some sort of a constraint um, landscape of uh, possibilities, I guess. Yeah, let me take a second to explain pseudo-randomness because I kind of use, we're using that term, but not everyone's gonna know what that means. Mm -hmm. So think about like a computer. A computer is an entirely deterministic device. It has no randomness built into it. It's intentionally built to not allow for randomness. That's like the whole point of his existence is to try to remove the random aspects of physics and do, you know, that's why they have an off on switch where it's clearly the switch is off or on. Sorry, not for the computer, but like for a bit for the memory in the computer is what I'm referring to. They use it through an electric charge where there's either enough of a charge you know for sure that a one was intended or there's a small enough charge you know for sure that a zero is intended and the randomness in charges it it never is close to the middle where you don't know if it's a zero or one and they intentionally build computers to try to avoid random effects so then you think about like you're playing a video game and you're playing let's say an rpg and you're fighting a monster and it's randomly determining if you hit the monster or not based on in part on your skills or something like that. How does a computer that has no randomness, how does it mimic a random roll of a die? Well, it can, right? And we're all familiar with that. You've probably never really thought about the fact that that's actually a contradiction. So the way they do it is, is they have something called pseudo randomness, which is an algorithm that creates numbers with an, you know, so let's say you're trying to create the numbers one to 10, it will evenly split between one and 10, and it will do so in a way that has no obvious pattern. Eventually a pattern will emerge, but it will be over a long enough period of time that a normal human wouldn't be able to notice it. Um, And they do, and then they'll, they'll like, they'll have something what they call a seed, and the seed determines what that distribution is going to be. And here's the thing that people don't realize, it's entirely deterministic. If I give it the same seed, it will produce exactly the same supposedly random numbers in exactly the same order from start to finish. And and it's completely determined upfront what the result's going to be. Um, And they get around that by seeding it from say the time, like the time you actually booted up your computer, it's never gonna be exactly the same time. So they they grab a little bit of a random element from real life, and then they use that to seed the pseudo-random numbers. And then from that point forward, for all intents and purposes, it, you're going to perceive it as a random number that it's generating um, because that there's that initial uh, randomness. And then the distributions are made in such a way that they're basically indistinguishable for humans from uh, truly random numbers. If you were to look at them over a long enough period of time, you would start to see a pattern emerge that makes it look different than true randomness. But as far as we know, any algorithm that you can write that uses a random element, you can use a pseudo random element and it will still work. And so we don't really know of any programs that require randomness. And so that's why when they define the Turing machine, which is supposed to be the ideal computer, they don't, in theory, they could include like a randomizer and that you could build a Turing machine that has a randomizer, they do that in real life. They'll put a randomizer into the computers that are used in Las Vegas, let's say. Um, but they don't actually include that in computational theory because it's, it's perceived as being, as not increasing the power of the computer, power meaning the types of algorithms that it can produce. Um, so that's kind of what pseudo randomness is. 
And so it, it's entirely deterministic and yet it has the perception of randomness, basically. That's, I, somehow I have this conversation all the time with my teenager about um, Spotify listening to music on random. He always says, hey, it's not random. I go back and play and, and hit random on the same playlist and it'll play them in the same order, um, which is I'm sure exactly what you're talking about, that 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 seed is the same that they don't they really probably don't care. But I also always point out to him that humans are not great at random anyway. We're not even great at what it like our expectations for what random is. Um, are often incorrect and and we're we're not good at perceiving random yes that's true they've done all sorts of experiments that prove that when humans are asked to like say pick a random number between one and ten and like do a bunch of those it's really easy to tell that a human did it instead of uh, either a computer or uh, a true random like roll the die because humans are not yet anywhere close to random hmm. And, and, and I think in this, as far as I can tell, uh, I can see that how in coming up with AGI, I don't think that's going to be an issue, but I'm still calling creativity no, uh, novel. And uh, for one that I think that how creativity came about, that's where the novelty plays, but there is another aspect of it, but I don't think that's going to be of relevance to AGI. Uh, I think that creativity, you know, uh, creative beings such as us, um, we can perform experiments, we can do quantum experiments, so we can tap into other types of randomness in nature. And then, so, so what I'm thinking now, let, let me kind of give you a little bit of what I'm thinking about free will now. All right, so I think- but Before you do that, can I tell a joke quickly? That yeah, yeah. <laughs> My wife and I, when we were young, um, we used to play rock, paper, scissors to determine who had to like, say, change the diaper. And I always won. It, it was nowhere close to random. <laughs> and, and in fact, Cameo knows this too. I got a reputation at the place that Cameo and I used to work as being very good at rock, paper, scissors because I beat people so often at it. And it, it turns out that humans pick rock as the first, as their opening move, way more than one third. <laughs> uh -oh, so no, all you have to do your is- Your secret. <laughs> Yeah, that's all you have to do is pick paper oh, and, as your first move, and you will win a vastly disproportionate a number of times. But anyhow, so I just wanted to bring that up. Sure, sure. Uh, but but anyways, I, I don't know what what I'm thinking here is that, and I I, I don't know. This is probably the most um, skeptical aspect of what I'm going to say here uh, as to why why I think there might be something to free will. Uh, which is more novel than, um, let's say, the people who are obviously saying that it's emergent in the sense of being compatible with determinism. Um, well, I, I think that we are, we might be, or us or other creative beings like us, are the only uh, entities that could tinker with reality in the sense that we're not only just playing at classical level with randomness, as in our brains, you know, when we're trying to, but we can actually, now that we know about quantum theory and stuff, we can tinker with reality at a different level too. Um, and we're already creating, like uh, we have created new laws, but all of those things, maybe we could fully capture in, you know, aspect of that can be captured in a fully deterministic theory. But I think it seems like 
if you look at the humans, like creativity as a phenomena, again, not as just looking at one human in their lifetime and understanding why they do certain things. Why do I uh, wake up every morning and want to have a cup of tea with my granola bar or something like that? I'm saying creativity, the, the evolution of creativity in general, as it was what evolution, again, now I'm using it in the more the other sense of just how it, you know, what it does in the world uh, with time. Uh, it seems like we're, we come up with, you know, if you look at human history, we have made progress in economics. Uh, our laws uh, that we, the, the laws that govern the, whether it's the economic world, whether it's politics, how we run our societies, they've all evolved and changed. We're not stuck. So, so it seems like, um, I guess the way, best way to say it is be the state spate of uh, space of possibilities keep there, there isn't an upper bound on it it seems like we we are able to create new constraints then come new problem then we can create new possibilities based on that and we can keep going forward but where i think free will where, where we might be able to understand free will um is that we can also do quantum theory right we, we've discovered uh quantum theory we can do quantum experiments so maybe the, if there are aspects of nature that are truly random, like they're not deterministic in the sense of the many worlds interpretation, then maybe the choices we, we make would have such a strong causal effect on the world, this causal autonomy we, we have, then we can fully proclaim that we're part of that nature that can actually change the future evolution of uh, the universe. I think the only way we could ever really make any sense of free will other than saying, I think compatibilism, I'm not just, I'm really, I'm not satisfied with, with that. That's just means determinism. I think the only way we could really say what free will is, is if we could have an, have a causal influence on the nature itself. In other words, what if in the future we could do experiments, um, which could maybe lead to the death of the universe, or maybe we could prevent the death of the universe. So we could, by, by choosing the experiments we do, by choosing how to tinker with nature through our experimentation and with science. Uh, but I think if, if it's fully deterministic, as in the multiverse, then I really don't think, uh, I mean, I, I, I really don't think we can, we can make ourselves feel happy. But yeah, it's, you know, if we're, if, if we're going down the route of every way where we could have saved the universe and not saved the universe, and they all happened then I don't know if I can call it free will. It's fully deterministic, it's emergent. Interesting, okay. So this is definitely something that you and I disagree over, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna pass over this one for now. And okay. I, I definitely And understand. that's my most skeptical view, like I'm yeah. saying. And, and I, I, I think the only people's I will ever... concern over this. So Sorry? I definitely it... understand people's you know, emotional concern over this. I, I, I think that this is very common for people to feel very uncomfortable with the idea of, of a deterministic free will. I think, and I, I know that you've, uh, you know, I've actually kind of looked into it. Um, Stephen Wolfram's definition of how most of the emergent phenomena is actually uh, computationally, you know, irreducible. That's Even right. then having looked at it somehow that just doesn't really satisfy me. I think as long as reductionism is there, uh, I, I don't think there is any escape from uh, that. We don't, you know, uh, I think we are, um, I mean, I guess you could say that saying that something is, let, let's go forward. I'm going to talk about this in a little bit more detail. Okay. I, I think I'm going to try to, I'm, I'm trying to squeeze in too much here. Um, let me, let me just clarify one thing that you said though, because it's interesting. Stephen Wolfram 
he his theory on this, he points out that determinism and predictability aren't the same. So we we you might be tempted to think that if something's deterministic, it's predictable. And then you could imagine, well, because all my choices are predictable, I don't really have free will. You might say that to yourself. Wolfram points out that that's just a misunderstanding, right? That actually a deterministic process, the only way to find out for the vast majority of deterministic processes, the only way to find out what the result is, is by performing them. You have to actually do the computation to find out what the result will be. There's a few exceptions. There's like certain things in science, like let's say the fact that the orbits around the sun are periodic. There's a shortcut computation you can do where you can say, I wanna know where the, all the planets will be on some very specific date, 2000 years into the future. And you can, you can predict that in some meaningful sense, assuming that there's not some sort of outside force that changes things. Um, you could predict what those would be like because that happens to be a computation that has a shortcut. But the vast majority of computations, according to Wolfram, have no shortcut. Therefore, the fact that it's deterministic does not equate to being predictable and the two aren't related. So that's kind of the theory that she was referencing there. But I guess the, where I just have this thing where I'm not satisfied is that, well, okay, so you know, I'm thinking more from the the the, the many worlds interpretation too that, um, you know, okay, you can't predict what I'm going to do next, but, but you know, the, the, the choices that I have, if, I mean, I don't know, maybe later on, uh, we're going to see stricter constraints on the, the money, many worlds, and it doesn't happen that maybe we do have somehow more uh, causal autonomy than we see right now. But if I'm going to go both ways of eating my dessert and not eating the dessert and both happen, then choice really is kind of emergent in a sense illusion, kind of like how time is uh, looked at as an emergent property, but not fundamental. In other words, the choices are not fundamental. They are emergent, right? That's what I think that, that, uh, that a deterministic view leads to. And I, I think it's just not satisfactory for me. Then, uh, I mean, I understand what you're saying in that Wolfram's viewpoint, it still doesn't satisfy me. I think the only way where I will see that we have free will is if we truly have uh, a causal autonomy to the point as if we are almost reflective, like we become almost like a little reflection of the universe itself. In other words, that universe has created new laws, universe is learning, and now through us is the next phase where it's not just the next phase, the universe is still learning, but we can actually affect what the universe uh, might do next. We will have a say in it too. I think that's the only, if that doesn't turn out to be the case, then you know I'll still be a compatibilist and uh, just it's just not satisfactory as free will. Yeah, so I, I don't want Hmm? I don't want to derail where you're going with this. Yeah, yeah. And I, um, like I said, this is more of the skeptical place. But, but yeah, uh -huh. let me just say that there's a there's a weak form of that that I think is already true of the many worlds. I won't go into describing exactly what I mean here, but I think you're looking for a stronger form than what the many worlds interpretation of quantum. Yeah. Um, but there, there's kind of this weak form because we are error correcting entities we do affect what the probabilities of quantum physics are because- Actually, I've kind of contemplated that too. And I'm also wondering that the direction in which I'm going into, it might actually end up, once we take time seriously as an evolutionary process. Um, again, I don't wanna get 
too off topic because it, it will hopefully eventually come like I'm, I'm thinking along those lines that the multiverse, uh, the many worlds, sorry, uh, eventually might be might turn out to be true. Um, but it, but but what we're going to see is a more uh, constrained multiverse when time becomes when, when we truly take time um, as a fundamental concept, we're going to see a more constrained multiverse. I've actually thought about that before that, um, you know, I used to wonder that, okay, if when the universe, uh, when the humans came about in the universe or entities like us were creative, does that put constraints on the many worlds? You know, I've really always thought about it that. Does. I, I think it does. I think it does. In a weak but, form, but I don't think many worlds as it stands can, um, can address it, but I think a true theory of time might be able to address it and many worlds might turn out to be an approximation to that. Okay, okay. And I also think in the same case, I know I'm jumping ahead, but I I have a feeling constructor theory in that sense also might turn out to be an approximation. I don't know. But but constructor theory is very much based on locality. And um, so so I I, I don't know. Um, Again, I'm kind of thinking maybe non-locality even uh, might be one of the more fundamental aspects than locality. But I'm again, jumping way ahead now. Okay. Okay. So, um, what, what I was going to mention, Joe, just the, the weak aspect of many worlds where humans do affect the outcome is really the fact that the existence of universal explainers causes the many worlds to converge. And that's something that David Deutsch does talk about in his books. But if you actually like work out just the way the process works, that is something that is just true of any time you have creative beings that the many worlds will start to converge um, because they want to hold the state of the world in, in a fewer number of states than what would just naturally evolve out of quantum physics on its own absent intelligent beings. I don't think that's really what you're getting at. No, and I, I feel like my worry stems from a deeper problem in physics, which kind of makes me question actually, um, uh, the, uh, the current quantum theory. So I, I ha- I'll have to explain that to you. I can almost in a way, again, just dealing at an emergent level and not addressing those deeper problems, I could buy into that. But since now I know those deeper problems, I just cannot overlook that. Okay. Just right. something different. I think that those constraints that may be there in the m- many worlds will have to come from a deeper theory. Uh, I, I, I don't think, the, I, I just don't think quantum theory might be, might be, I may be wrong, but I, I think it's um, it's an approximation to a deeper theory. But anyways, let's let's move forward. So so other things that are emergent are clocks and rods, or sometimes called clocks and rulers. I, for some reason, I don't know why we always use the term clocks and rods. Um, I've heard that used quite a bit. Um, but um, so clocks and rulers, which basically are, are references to time and space, some sort of measure, right? Clocks and rulers are emergent. But that, that's not, that, that's all, that, that, that doesn't capture time. That's what I'm going to say. They're, the clocks and rulers are emergent, but time is a different beast. Uh, so when I'm thinking time now, I was actually kind of becoming convinced because I thought that some of our best theories are hinting at how clocks could emerge from them, as well as rulers, how space and time are emergent. You'll hear a lot of physicists talk about that. So I was starting to get in a very comfy place 
Uh, but then when I came across some of these deeper problems, it literally shook me down to the core. And I, I kind of started thinking again that, no, there is something missing. Maybe clocks and like clocks and rulers can emerge. But what I, when I'm saying time, the novel thing is a different beast altogether that I'm going to talk about. It's something generative. It's a generative aspect of the world, which cannot be captured in any type of a static configuration um, of reality. So, okay. um, so, um, so I wanted to kind of talk about, um, let me see what I else, why. So, so get, I, I guess what I'm, what I'm capturing when I say novelty, um, I think it's, I came, I don't know, suddenly I, not too long ago, it, it came to my, my, my mind, uh, a quote by somebody. And then I looked it up and I realized it was Mark Twain. It says time is what keeps everything from happening at once. <laughs> and I think that really kind of almost suddenly resonated at that time in my mind. I'm like, wow, it was almost like an epiphany. Uh, again, the focus there is the history, the process. Um, novelty, when, when, when I'm talking about novelty, the history and the process matters a lot. Um, and there is no other way. There are no shortcuts that you have to go through that. Um, so, so I'm going to stop there. Now I think I, I would like to go a little bit more into the problem of time. So, so I'm going to ask. Yeah. We probably need to wrap up for this episode and then. Yeah, it seemed like I, I was hoping that I could actually talk a little bit more about uh, the whole emergence of time, but yeah, I don't think we'll be able to cover all. By the that. way, um, Dr. Who did an episode about that concept of time is what keeps everything from happening at once. <laughs> so huh. they had an episode about where time broke. So everything was happening at once. So it was oh, really? humorous. Yeah, it was humorous. I, I, you know, it, it probably was based on that quote from Mark Twain. I, I didn't, didn't occur to me at the time. I didn't know that this was a Mark Twain quote. But uh, it, funny now to realize that might have been the inspiration for the episode. Uh -huh. Interesting. I'll have to look that up, actually. I've never really, for some reason, I love sci-fi, but I've, I never really watched Doctor Who for some reason. I don't know why. But, but I'll, I'll try to find that episode now. Turn in your nerd card, you're done. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, I do want to, so, so just to keep you, you know, some of you come back, I haven't really given you the big, the, the, the big kaboom here where the, the problem that lingers in my head is this problem of very special initial conditions um, yeah. of the universe, the, 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 the apparent fine tuning of the universe needed to explain uh, for a strictly deterministic reductionistic theory to explain why the world is interesting. So, uh, I mean, I think we should make a differentiation between reductionism. I mean, you could be a determinist, but not necessarily a reductionist. But I think even then there are certain problems there because then you may ask yourself, okay, so there are laws of nature. If I'm not a reductionist, then in what shape or form do those laws exist, right? So now that the humans are here and there, those laws govern, okay did they come out were they you know did the laws were the laws created or were they always there I mean where do they live so I think I would like to kind of address those questions that I'm going to go to the the question what are actually laws of nature and I'm going to show you that how the, the current way of looking at it whether it's pure whether it's just reductionism or whether it's even a reductionist who's um Oh, sorry, let me let me go back again and say this again. Whether you're a determinist who is not necessarily a reductionist or you're a determinist who is a reductionist has to address this question. Because this whole thing of the, the dichotomy we make between laws of nature and a state on which it acts pretty much just breaks down. 
um, uh, it has some fundamental flaws there when we try to apply it to a theory of cosmology, like the universe as a whole. Okay, um, so so I would like to kind of that that's the the meat of what I'm trying to discuss here. The, that why are why these laws and why initial conditions? If I could pretty much put it in a question right now, which I will, which uh, hopefully next time we can come into and talk about why you know. Are you familiar with Pen, what Penrose has said about this? Because he actually points out the ridiculousness of the current way of thinking of things with initial conditions. So I don't know. Oh if yeah, and, and there are quite a few people who've talked about this, and there are many physicists. Um, who recognize it, but they somehow just say, well, okay, I guess we're just gonna go back to doing what we're doing. We can't do anything about it. But, but you know, I, I kind of consider myself as a useless physicist. So I have the time and uh, whatever <laughs> to think about this. That's why I kind of left academia. I don't care. I mean, I'm just gonna keep thinking about the things that, uh, that are fun for me. You know, I don't have to hold a job and keep publishing and keep my job in that way. So I, I can afford to, I can also put my reputation on the line if, by venturing into directions that other people might be scared to do. But anyways, oh, that makes sense. I, that's what I enjoy doing. So <laughs> that's what I, that's why I did physics and, you know. Well, yeah. Sadia, we appreciate you coming on. You, you've injected a lot of interesting thoughts into the discussion. So we're going to be excited to have you back and to continue this. I suspect we're going to have at least three episodes here, maybe more. Uh, yeah i've thoroughly enjoyed doing this and even preparing for it uh it's just that there's just so much that goes into this that sometimes you just feel like you're all over the place like right now my uh my study table is full of books anywhere from like theoretical biology to you know quantum theory to general it's like it's all over the place and sometimes i find myself going back and forth depending on you know what i'm thinking at that point it's it's tough, it's, but, but, but there is a running thread through all of this that we need to pay attention to. And I think that points to the problem of time. All right. Well, thank you for coming on. Thank you, everybody. All right, thanks. Thank you. Thank you. All right, bye-bye. The Theory of Anything podcast could use your help. We have a small but loyal audience, and we'd like to get the word out about the podcast to others so others can enjoy it as well. To the best of our knowledge, we're the only podcast that covers all four strands of David Deutsch's philosophy as well as other interesting subjects. If you're enjoying this podcast, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. This can usually be done right inside your podcast player, or you can Google the Theory of Anything podcast Apple or something like that. Some players have their own rating system, and giving us a five-star rating on any rating system would be helpful. If you enjoy a particular episode, please consider tweeting about us or linking to us on Facebook or other social media to help get the word out. If you are interested in financially supporting the podcast, we have two ways to do that. The first is via our podcast host site, Anchor. Just go to anchor.fm slash four dash strands f-o-u-r dash s-t-r-a-n-d-s there's a support button available that allows you to do reoccurring donations if you want to make a one-time donation go to our blog which is fourstrands.org there is a donation button there that uses paypal thank you